1: Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF with your co-anchors Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo. We're going to do three top stories today ripped from the intersection of law and politics. First, Karen and I are going to discuss the Supreme Court's recent decision this week on a five to four basis to stop a law in Texas that would have required social media platforms to put on their platform Um, offensive subject matter and viewpoints that don't fit with their platform's ideals like the KKK, QAnon, gun violence, and the like. So that's one good thing the Supreme Court has done in a long, long while, and we'll talk about it. Secondly, we'll talk about the, uh, the case of Peter Navarro, former economist, White House advisor, and potentially someone going to jail. He's already been found in contempt by the Jan six committee. And now he's been brought before one of several grand juries that are impaneled in the district of Columbia by the department of justice to hear all things related to the attempted overthrow of this government and January 6th. And lastly, we're gonna talk about the uh, speaking of Trump, we're gonna talk about John Durham, a special prosecutor who has spent millions of taxpayer dollars and wasted three years of time to put on one trial against one lawyer on one count in the District of Columbia and having lost that that trial. Um, and we'll talk about that as well. So we got three very, very interesting, supremely timely. All these things happened in the last 72 hours. And Karen and I are here to break it down. Karen, how are you?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. I sat on my backside for 17 hours straight yesterday trying to get 3 federal briefs out the door for a client which we were successful but it definitely tested my stamina. I'm getting too old for this. Can't we do full-time podcasting?
0: Yeah, well, maybe we'll see.
1: Maybe. All right, let's let's find out.
0: Exactly. Let's
1: let, let's start with an interesting case and an interest showing you how certain political views and views on the First Amendment sometimes create strange bedfellows. I thought the same thing
0: about this case, Yeah,
1: because we had you're rarely going to hear on Legal AF us ever talk about a situation where at the Supreme Court level, a liberal justice, Justice Kagan, sided with the conservatives, um, although she lost in a five to four decision in a case called Net Choice versus Paxton. Let me set the stage for it. In September of this past year, Texas, where else? passed a law, which is known as House Bill or HB 20, which required two things of social media platforms of a certain size. When you hear social media platforms of a certain size, think Facebook, think Twitter. It required them to do two things. One, it required them to keep on their platform followers and um, users who had, let's just put it, let's put it mildly for now, unique viewpoints. How do you read that? That means if you're the KKK, if you're a racist, if you're QAnon, if you're a neo-Nazi, or if you wanna talk about gun violence and how to perpetuate gun violence, Texas's law would require those social media platforms to have those views on those platforms. We've talked about in the past how that's a First Amendment issue, but that's not a First Amendment issue for the people who hold those views. That's a First Amendment issue for the private companies that by the Texas law would have been required to have on their platforms, video, audio, and other, and other media that they don't want on their platform. It would have, it would have stopped them from taking that content down, and the law would have stopped them from what's called deplatforming, which is exactly what it sounds like. If a user violates the terms of service, Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, right now those platforms can take them off, take those, those abusers off the platform and cancel them. That's how Trump got removed from Twitter. So Texas and Florida tried the exact same thing, put in their HB 20, the law, a D. De- an anti-deplatforming provision that would have stopped that. So how do we get, and then I'll turn it over to Karen about the Supreme Court. The case starts in the Western District of Texas in a federal court. That judge who sits on the more democratic side of the aisle decides that that law violates the First Amendment rights of the social media platforms and issues an injunction to stop the enforcement or the attorney general of that state, Paxton, from enforcing that law. Well, uh, the the other side, Paxton didn't like that result. So he took it to, we talk about the Fifth Circuit all the time, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals sitting in New Orleans covering Texas. And at the Fifth Circuit, no surprise, Paxton and Texas get a favorable result. The Fifth Circuit says the trial judge was wrong, and issues a stay of the injunction. So now we're like layered on here. Staying an injunction means that the law would be enforceable if the Fifth Circuit had its way. So Netscape and the other social media platforms, they don't like that result. So they take an emergency appeal to the justice for the Supremes that is responsible for the Fifth Circuit. And that happens to be Justice Alito. So all Fifth Circuit emergency appeals get assigned to Justice Alito. He has two choices. He can either make the decision himself, thumb up or thumb down whether the Fifth Circuit was right, or he can refer the issue to the full panel, the full Supreme Court for a decision. And a little bit surprisingly, Alito said, you know what? I don't want to do this myself, although I could. I'm going to turn it over to the full nine member, nine justice Supreme Court. So there was full briefing there and a ruling came down on Thursday that was a five to four decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in, in favor of the original trial judge stopping the the law from going into effect. Meaning as of right now, right, the Supreme Court has Sided with the social media platforms against the state of Texas and the enforcement of HB 20. What did you think about all of that and the strange bedfellows we opened yeah. the segment with, Karen?
0: Yeah, look, I had I, I'll be honest, I had to reread this about three times to even understand it because it is so complicated to try to understand that you're sort of what you're blocking and who's not what blocking and the bedfellows kept confusing me because I didn't understand how it is that it wasn't only that uh, that Kagan sided with Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, but the majority that ultimately ruled in favor of Google and Facebook and Meta and, and Instagram, that, that had Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, and Judge, uh, Justice Roberts. So in addition to Breyer and Sotomayor, it was just a strange, it wasn't, this didn't break down between sort of conservative and, Liberal uh, lines. And it also just, I think, like I said, made strange bedfellows in the sense that you would, even if it did break down that way, you would imagine that the conservatives would side with Texas and the liberals would side with the the social media companies. But it it didn't break down that way at all. And I I think it's just going to be interesting to see where this goes. I I don't think we've heard the end of it. I think that um, this is a I think this is going to be an interesting case that's going to test what the limits of free speech are vis-a-vis the internet. Because you know, on the one hand, you have people saying the internet is the modern-day Times Square. You know, where where free speech and free voices need to be kind of allowed, and you're you can't, uh, you can't um, you can't prevent that in this country. You know, there's a right to free speech, and if this really is the town square of today then I think, uh, I think it's going to be very difficult to keep um, p- places like Texas from passing laws that say, look, you got to allow viewpoints because think about it. It's not like they're saying meta or Instagram or Twitter that you must create speech or say something that you don't like. What they're saying is you can't censor others' free speech from saying what they want. And I think when you th- when you kind of think about the fact that you know, there's a broad case law and statutory law out there, uh, something called the Communications Decency Act, which is a federal law that basically says if you're an internet provider, you can't be held liable for things like defamation. You know, that basically they're nothing, they're, they cannot be held liable for anything because they're not the people speaking. They're literally just the platform. I think that's going to come into play here ultimately because they're not the speakers. You know, they're not the ones providing content. It's not their voice. And I do think ultimately there's a possibility that it's going to go more in the direction of this is sort of a free speech and, and you're infringing on others free speech by not allowing them to be in the modern day sort of public square. But we'll see. Yeah. You know, it's hard, it's hard to know where this is going to end up. And, but, the, but like I said, I had to read this several times because I didn't understand the positions uh, of the justices. It just well, didn't break why- down.
1: That's why people come to Legal AF so they can they let us read it three times and then we can exp- <laughs> we can explain it to them. Here's here's the problems that I see in the future. I, I, I Kagan did not write an opinion. Alito joy, wrote a fairly lengthy dissent of about five or six pages, joined by um, Gorsuch and Thomas. Thomas is itching to overturn and find Section Two Hundred and Thirty and its um, provisions providing immunity from suit, civil suit to the social media platforms, unconstitutional and to overturn it. He said it in past the sense he's just waiting for the right case and see if he has the votes to do it. So even though this case involves the ability of a private and let's not lose sight of the fact, I know we like to talk about, well, this has become the public square and the town square and all. It's a private company. It's a private company they're not even a utility, unless you're going to convert them into, and, and maybe that's where this goes. You know, even though you private companies operate our electrical grid, they operate our nuclear power plants, they operate our water and gas lines, there is a quasi-governmental component to that because they're given a right to do that and a license to do that, if you will. And therefore, utilities are sometimes analyzed under a different uh, standard than your normal private company. If the Supreme Court is gonna start viewing private social media platforms owned by shareholders, owned by private citizens, if Elon Musk has his way with Twitter, and treat them like utilities, then that also upends the taxing, income tax applications of private utilities, of of private companies, because now you're forcing them against their business model their ethos, their values to have on their platform and be the home for the web. Now the web then becomes, there's no more dark web and web. It's just dark web. And if that, I'm not in favor of that. Now it's interesting to see where Kagan ends up because she did not write an opinion, but would have sided because of where she voted, would have sided with the Texas law at least now until the full merits are, d- are decided on briefing um, you know, soon. This is, this is not the last stop on the train for this case. This is a preliminary stop subject to them deciding, the Supreme Court deciding, whether to take this case up in the next term to decide issues like the application of Section 230, whether Internet, social media providers, and platforms are the equivalent of utilities and therefore can be regulated in a certain way that regular private platforms can't be. I hope they don't take it to that extreme because I don't want to be, on, frankly, on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or the rest of them if they're also going to be the home for not just divergent viewpoints, dangerous, insidious viewpoints. I don't want the kid that walked into U- Uvalde to have, have the ability to not, to not just go into the dark web to find you know uh, uh, information about how New Zealand's mass killing happened and which weapon he should use and how to assemble or disassemble his weapon. I'd rather him find that in the hinterlands, the dark corner of the web, and not be able to go click on YouTube to find it, because YouTube has decided to take that kind of information down. Um, I know it's First Amendment issues, but as long as they're private companies, I seriously do not have a problem with it. We're going to follow this. We're going to follow this more. Let's move on into um, the January 6th overthrow of the country, um, which is uh, in all the news. (laughs) We've We've been following it for over a year. And now we've got Peter Navarro, who everybody knows because he's He's, he loves being on all the Sunday morning shows and all the and all the news maxes and uh, Fox newses he He was by training before he sort of went you know round the bend. He was an economist an Harvard trained economist, had been a Democrat earlier in his career, became a Republican and then a diehard trumper. Trump brings him into the White House as an advisor, even gives him the. Um, some uh, major economic levers that the White House is in charge of, puts Peter Navarro in charge of that. I saw Peter Navarro commenting about COVID as an economist and giving medical advice on television. He, he's basically a shill that, do what, that, that did whatever Trump asked him to do. And the Gen 6 committee asked him a year ago, almost a year ago, to come before the committee and give testimony. He refused. He was found in contempt by the House. It was referred to the Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia where it currently sits. In the interim, we now learn from Peter Devarro himself, who yesterday filed a lawsuit, this sounds familiar, against the Department of Justice, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the District of Columbia, Nancy Pelosi and the Jan Six Committee, claiming what else that the Jan Six Committee is a hoax that it has no power, that it is um, it, it is invalid, the subpoenas against him, and to have the whole investigation against him thrown out. Where have we heard that before? Trump tried the exact same thing and lost last week in the Northern District of New York in, ju- in front of Judge Sanes, Sanis or Sainz. So this is right out of that playbook. Why does it matter? Because we learned something new from Navarro, who's now been, according to him, had the um, two FBI agents knock on his door over the long weekend and serve him with a grand jury subpoena, criminal grand jury subpoena for the District of Columbia. What did we learn that was new in this new information?
0: Well, he says that it's a different grand jury than uh, other grand juries that we know the Department of Justice has going into the January 6th, January sixth uh, insurrection. You know, don't forget there's a grand jury that's been bringing cases against I think 800 different insurrectionists, uh, the people sort of going into the Capitol. There's also a grand jury uh, that has been circling around and issuing subpoenas, circling around the lawyers like Rudy Giuliani, and now we've got what he says is is a different grand jury here. So. What does that
1: mean? What is that, what, you know, when we talk about it as, as lay people or on the street or at a cocktail party, we say, Oh, the grand jury grand mm-hmm. jury's issuing subpoenas. How about a matter that's so complex that it requires multiple grand juries? What does that tell you as a former prosecutor?
0: Well, there's just a lot of moving parts really. So there's two different kinds of grand juries. There's the regular grand jury that sits and hears regular cases. And they usually sit for a period of time, uh, maybe for a month. And they sit either all in the, every morning, five days a week, or every afternoon. You know, whatever it is, there's a set period of time, and they hear just kind of whatever comes in, whether it's a gun case, a drug case, whatever. But then sometimes, if a prosecutor has a matter that they think is going to be a long-term investigation, where they it's going to be complicated, they want to issue lots of subpoenas, and it's going to take more than that one sort of month period of time. Uh, to, to be doing this, they will impanel what's known and what's called a special grand jury. And the special grand jury is usually you, you ask permission from a court to create this grand jury, and they sit for a period of time, sometimes six months, sometimes longer. And uh, and that special grand jury is impaneled to hear a particular special case. And what this tells me is, uh, is uh, it, there's potentially a special grand jury here. Um, but of course, this is just from the words of Navarro, so I don't know that that has been impaneled to hear this this particular matter in this particular case. And you know, Navarro here is claiming executive privilege, and you know only Trump can decide whether or not he can testify and whether he has to comply with this. You know, as you said, we've heard we've sort of heard this speech before, and you know Navarro is is. We, we know he was held. He was found in contempt of Congress and Congress referred that to the Department of Justice, which is a, an appropriate referral an appropriate criminal referral. And the Department of Justice is looking into that and looking into whether to hold him in contempt. And he's arguing uh, executive privilege here. So
1: Peter Navarro is a very interesting cat. First of all, he's going to be representing himself in the lawsuit that yeah, he's I saw that <laughs> we, we call that pro se. I call that insane. Yeah, well, he says why? He's, he's he says he's qualified to do that because he's written for some law review law law articles he's written in the past that's apparently in his mind qualifies him to to litigate as a first chair trial lawyer a federal case that he's brought even if he's Um, the best
0: trial even if he's the best trial lawyer there is you know what they say about doctors right i mean
1: or or lawyers who have their who represent themselves they have a fool for a client themselves
0: exactly it's just right
1: so so he so that so that's one secondly He's got a because he didn't go to law school and he's never tried cases. Mm -hmm. He's got a he's not um, tethered to reality or uh, he doesn't let facts and law get in the way of an argument. So he says things like Trump alone holds the executive privilege, not Biden. And only Trump can release me. So the the prosecutor in D.C. should be negotiating with Trump about my appearance. That's not how executive privilege works. We've got a body of case law and about five other cases in the last year that have said that that have confirmed that the current sitting president holds the executive privilege. And that executive privilege has been waived by the current sitting president. And it's not a floating privilege that goes out the door on Jen, you know, the day after the uh, new president is sworn in, that goes out the door with the ex-president who gets to hold executive privilege. It's not like attorney-client privilege. Attorney-client privilege I sort of get. If Navarro was an attorney, but he's an economist. So there's no economist president privilege (laughs) that he can assert. So he's left with the executive privilege. And the executive privilege is kind of transitory. If you're in office, you get to have it. If you're out of office, you don't have it anymore. That's what all that's the boil down of that. So he's wrong on that. Secondly, he keeps using this phrase, which which burns my ass because he, you know, he got it from like television, but he keeps using it constantly in his press releases and in his in his media attacks. He says, um, this new subpoena from the grand jury is just a continuation of the one from Jan 6 committee. And that's fruit of the poisonous yeah, tree.
0: I saw that. All
1: right. So why don't you explain to our listeners and followers, what is the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine? And then I'll explain why this isn't it.
0: So the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine means that you can't if you if you illegally do something as law enforcement, you can't then continue that illegality. it It continues on if, if if the tree itself is poisoned. So for example, if you if you knock down someone's door without a search warrant and you were supposed to have a search warrant and you go in, but let's say you find uh, something illegal in there. Uh, the, the, you would argue it's fruit of the poisonous tree because you weren't allowed in there in the, to, in the first place. Right, and so that, everything, that's the
1: that, yeah, everything that comes off the illegal act uh, is going to be suppressed and not ultimately brought into evidence, even though that individual piece of evidence might have been sort of lawfully obtained. If it came off the root or the trunk of a poisonous act, that's the fruit of the poisonous tree, exactly. right? Exactly. So for him, I guess the fruit of the poisonous tree yeah, what's is he the thinks, poisonous tree here. Oh, he thinks the Gen six committee is illegal. He thinks it's invalid, illegal and rogue, and they don't have the power. And there's only been about 10, 10 different cases, including at the Supreme Court level that says that they have valid powers. You may not like their powers, but they have valid powers um, and, a, and a valid um, a policy reason to exist. And so for him, it all comes back to that. Why, is, why do we even give a crap about Peter Navarro, this sort of wacky, you know, uh, absent-minded professor type? Because, just to remind everyone in case they didn't know it, he was an architect of the uh, fake elector scandal. He was the architect of trying to use, along with John Eastman, Mike Pence to overthrow the election to overthrow this government. He created what he's referred to in a book, I guess a vanity press book he published himself um, as the um, Green Bay Sweep, which would have been led by a quarterback, it's a football term, in this case, Mike Pence. So it all kind of was, Mike Pence is gonna working with these state legislatures are gonna overturn the will of the people because they're not gonna send the appropriate electors and the vote counting that needed to happen on on uh, on Jan 6th uh, to to Washington. And so this was Navarro's, you know, monkey wrench against the the machine of democracy that he was one of the leaders of. And also, you know, one of the crazies that Trump surrounded himself with in his little kitchen cabinet of crazies to um, you know, bolster Trump's position and, and his own thought process, that there, was a, that there was a fraud in the election, that the election can be overturned, that you don't have to let, you know, the popular vote or the electoral vote even matter. You just let these crazies at the, you find other crazies at the state level and you all join together and suddenly Trump gets to stay in office. This is, this is the group of people that Trump surrounded himself with. He had lawyers that told him all this and blew all that smoke up his ass. He had advisors. And why does this Department of Justice subpoena matter? Because it's one of the first ones, actually the first one for somebody in the inner inner circle, the most inner circle of Trump in the White House who has gotten a criminal subpoena to go sit in a chair in front of a federal prosecutor, you know, and a grand jury and testify. Now, here's the question. Can he take the fifth when he's asked to, to testify about his role in January 6th? And if he can, what is the implication of that?
0: I mean, the, this is really this whole entire uh, grand jury subpoena has to do with his contempt of Congress. It has to do with whether he has to give testimony before Congress. Right. And whether well, he I'm not su-
1: sure I'm not sure. It's, I don't think it's linked. I don't think it's only that. I I, because they they indicted Bannon without a grand jury. I think I thought they did an information. Maybe they did a grand jury, but they didn't have Bannon testify at his own grand jury before they. Right, because he can take the fifth. Look,
0: he he could take the fifth on on both. That's my question. Yeah, absolutely. In in state court, for example, uh, if you testify, you automatically get immunity in New York state court. I should say you get immunity. Um, That's not the case here in federal court. So, yes, he can absolutely uh, take the fifth.
1: So that's what he's going to do. He's going to go there. They have asked him to bring all all communications with Donald Trump. (laughs) That's interesting. And also other documents related to his role in this Green Bay sweep architecture. And um, I'm sure he won't bring documents and I'm sure he will take the fifth. Uh, in some way, um, well, the then, fifth though uh, only applies
0: yeah. to his testimony. It doesn't apply yeah. to him having to produce documents. So this is a dual subpoena. It's a, both a personal mm-hmm. appearance subpoena, as well as a subpoena duces tecum, which yeah. is Latin for you know produce. You have to produce certain documents, including uh, communications here.
1: Yeah, you're you're right. Sometimes the documents are found to be testimonial, and the fifth does apply. But generally, you're right. The documents are not going to be found to be. Um, the documents are going to have to be provided. And if and what it what happens if let's talk about it, he doesn't he shows up empty handed, hat in hand. OK, I'm, I'm taking the fifth to most questions. The jury, the grand jury will do what it, it does. It will probably indict him um, and, he, and he doesn't bring any documents. What is the next step then for the for the prosecutor and the judge overseeing the grand jury?
0: Yeah. So the, you go to the prosecutor will go to the judge and, and bring a motion to compel and the judge will order him to produce certain documents or not. But if the judge does order, you know, then they'll litigate the motion to compel. And ultimately, a judge will order him to produce whatever the judge deems is uh, relevant and appropriate. And if he doesn't, then he will be held in contempt of, uh, you know, court, not just, court. Uh, yeah, not just of Congress, but of court. And that's a whole different ballgame, you know, and there's, right. there's, as we've discussed in prior legal, a- legal AFs, you know, there's two different kinds of contempt, right? There's civil and then there's criminal and civil contempt is to try to require the person to, to bring the documents and to try to require um, com- compliance with the subpoena, and criminal contempt is you just aren't listening, and so I'm putting you in jail. So, you know, there's there's different avenues that are available yeah. to the court and to the prosecutor, but, but this is going to continue, sure. and You know, we'll see
1: we're going to have to build a whole new wing at the Federal Detention Center for all of these um, Trump acolytes and nutbags, because all of them think going to jail apparently in the name of this cause is a good thing. And they're all going to be cellmates in orange or whatever the current color of jumpsuits Mm -hmm. in the (laughs) detention center, blue, whatever it is. And he better bring his toothbrush because he's going to be going uh, with federal marshals if he does not produce ultimately produce the documents. That are required the federal grand jury and prosecutors are no joke and nothing to and nothing to play with and if you think benny thompson and jamie raskin and the rest you can just sort of thumb your nose at them and flout their authority try that at the federal grand jury and prosecutorial level you know and good luck um let's move on speaking of prosecutors this one a special prosecutor let's move on to um what happened with the former u.s attorney for connecticut John Durham, who I had a little bit of experience with. Um, not, I'm not shocked that he lost his only jury trial. Uh, <laughs> and I'll tell that story as we, as we move forward. Um, John Durham was chosen um, in um, 2019, the beginning of 2019, by then uh, Attorney General Barr to conduct an investigation. He was not yet appointed a special prosecutor. He still worked as a prosecutor under William Barr. So he didn't have the special powers and special job security that comes with being a special counsel. Um, So for a full 17 months, he just ran around trying to figure out whether um, the Russia-Trump connection was a hoax or not. And of course, That's what Trump wanted Barr to do. And that's what Barr wanted Durham to do. So he appointed this guy, came out of whatever retirement um, uh, as as a former prosecutor to take the job. He runs around for like 15 months and now we're coming close to the election. Meaning if if Trump loses and uh, Durham was not appointed a special prosecutor, uh, what used to be called an independent counsel, by all with under under the statute that provides for that,
0: like Mueller, he could get,
1: like Mueller, he could get removed by the new president. So Barr wanting to stop that suddenly elevated John Durham, who hadn't done diddly for 16 months into a special prosecutor, special counsel and with all new powers. And as I said, job security to investigate whether the FBI led investigation under um, you know, really started with Obama. At the end of Obama against Trump was an improper use of the FBI resources, an improper investigation, and all of that. Here's the problem that Barr always had, and Durham did too. When De- when Durham made the devil's bargain of becoming special special counsel, there is an Office of Inspector General for every department of the of the U.S. government and a state government. And the inspector general, which is supposed to be an independent watchdog for that agency, in this case, the FBI, did a 500 page investigative report that cleared the FBI of any wrongdoing related to how they conducted their investigation of the FBI Trump link. That was he was already clear. They already cleared the whole department. Barr didn't like the report, so he shit on it. And he had Durham before he became special prosecutor crap on the report as well. Why? Because, you know, Durham's about to be appointed special prosecutor to go find that there was an improper investigation by the FBI. He didn't need this Office of Inspector General report out there that said there wasn't. So they, they turned and fired on this poor, independent, civil servant inspector general who was only doing his job um, in clearing the FBI. Why is all this matter? Because Durham now special counsel has to justify millions of dollars of resources and taxpayer dollars spent for a one trial on one count against one attorney of no, no less Michael Sussman in, in the district of Columbia. And what is the one count? It's that Michael Sussman who was a very well known and well, well-considered and with a very high reputation, good reputation as sort of the lawyer for all political parties and democratic political parties, that kind of thing. He went in to the FBI and met with a friend, literally a friend, it was a friend. The friend happened to be the general counsel for the FBI. And he says, I got a tip, I got a tip. You might read it in the paper sooner rather than later. I don't want you to be surprised but there's a link I wanna to talk to you about. And the counsel, his name happened to be Jim Baker, not that Jim Baker, another Jim Baker. Said, sure, Michael, come on in, let's have a chat about whatever you wanna talk about. So Michael Sussman leaves his law firm in Washington, travels down the street and goes and meets with Jim Baker and lays out for Jim Baker a case about a link between a bank in Russia, a Moscow bank named Alpha Bank and, and the Trump Organization that there seems to be some computer traffic going on back and forth between this bank, which is linked to Putin and Donald Trump. And the FBI is already doing their investigation about about Trump and Russia links to begin with in 2016. Now, everybody knows that Michael Sussman represents some very high profile and powerful political figures. At the time he went to go meet with the general counsel. Everybody knows in Washington on K Street, And then all the other alphabet streets, the Michael Sussman and Perkins Coy, where he works, represent the Clintons, represent Democratic Party and other other people like that. And he also represents other. He has a client base. He represents a lot of different people. This is not a shock that, that he represented them. The question was. Was he representing the Clinton Foundation or the Clinton organization, the Clinton campaign and uh, the Democratic Party when he went and had a meeting with his buddy, the general counsel for the FBI, and he gave him the tip? Because he's allowed to give tips. The quality of the tip was not the prosecution. The prosecution was that the allegation that Michael Sussman lied, lied under, not even under oath, he lied because he didn't tell the FBI general counsel that he was there on behalf of a client. And Michael Sussman said, I wasn't there on behalf of a client. I was there as citizen Sussman to prevent to present a tip to him, not, and I didn't, not because I was working for any, any particular person. John Durham, who was supposed to have prosecutorial discretion, he listened to the facts of this case and said, I'm gonna bring this to a jury trial really okay so they literally took this poor man took his reputation and ripped it to shreds right because they don't care and prosecuted him for lying to his friend the general counsel and then there was a jury and what happened there karen
0: they acquitted in what six hours i mean this is over two days yeah, yeah this this case was a nothing burger from the start i mean you know it's it's as you said it's you can't it wasn't a lie under oath but you you still can't lie to the FBI, but it also has to be material for it to be criminal. Material means it has to be important, right? It has to be something important. It's not the kind of lie of, you know, do I look? Does this dress make me look fat? You know, it's not that kind of a lie. It's uh, the kind of lie that it really matters. And and I think this this really kind of fails the materiality test for two reasons. Number one, you know, anybody who is uh, has ever worked with the FBI knows that the FBI looks at every tip with with skepticism. I mean everybody has a motive, right? There's always a reason someone's coming in. And so they never just sort of take what someone says and they don't test it and they don't look at it. So so the, the idea that that this that they would not have looked at this skeptically that this was material this omission of who he was representing it almost doesn't matter and a, a really simple google search would show you who this guy's clients are and you know who 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 Sussman's clients are and who he represents he wasn't just you know this isn't some lawyer who represented some client that no one's ever heard of and it turns out that's where it's coming from I mean, he represented hillary clinton and the you know democratic national committee i mean this was the go-to lawyer of course he has he's always going to be viewed as somebody who's coming with that with that sort of Potential bias or bent, you know. So, for him to then come, you know, and, and it's also possible that he had two motives, you know. Maybe it was po- partly because he, you know, cares about about Hillary Clinton and and the Democrats winning, and that he also cared just to give them a tip, you know, because he's a concerned citizen. I mean, so to me, this never passed the the lie or materiality test. You would well. never
1: have prosecuted this case.
0: I just I would never prosecuted this case. It never made any sense that this was going forward, except for what you said, that this is clearly John Durham trying to justify his existence. I mean, this was such a humiliation, I think for that special prosecutor and for that investigation, because I okay. think there was three cases that have come out of this one that that he's taking credit for and that apparently didn't even come out of his investigation that pled guilty. And then this one that is now his big, huge trial. That's uh, that's a, a SmackDown acquittal. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, I liked what you said. I thought it was very, um, very good inside knowledge about the FBI always having a John view whenever they get a tip about the agenda of the person that's providing it to them. I mean, unless the Pope calls them, but even the Pope has an agenda. Yeah, yeah. Well, when they, when they make a phone call, um, not to equate Michael Sussman with the Pope at all. I mean, but, any
0: invest, but any investigator, yeah. that's what, that's what you do. They, you, you they, kick the tires, they, you test yeah. it, you corroborate it and you find out, is there something there?
1: What, what killed the, um, what what killed the trial um, for the prosecution, apparently, from my review, is that Baker, which should have been their key witness, because he was the person to whom the tip was made. He is the person upon which the entire one count prosecution is premised. He His testimony was not great for the prosecution. First of all, his memory apparently is terrible. <laughs> I mean, listen, I'm Push whatever. But you know, he, he said, I can't recall 116 times on the stand. That doesn't give a jury a big feeling of of credibility necessarily. That oh, the 100 you can't remember 116 things, but the thing you remember really clearly is this one. And even on the thing that he was supposed to remember real really clearly, he actually helped Michael Sussman because he said that Michael Sussman also gave him. This is a little bit troubling from a from a media First Amendment um, confidential sources standpoint, but apparently Michael Sussman also told the general counsel of the FBI which reporter, which news reporter, was going to run a story about this link between Alpha Bank and Trump, and Sussman, Citizen Sussman, the Patriot, didn't want the story to run necessarily if it was going to interfere with the investigation by the FBI. Because a lot of times, as you know, um, Karen, the investigators and the FBI don't want the reporters running around out there at the start, especially at the start of an investigation. And the general counsel said, thank you very much. And um, pardon me, said, thank you very much. And um, actually was able to reach the reporter and kill the story. Why is that important? It goes back to your dual motive observation. The Clinton campaign wanted the story to run in real time in the newspaper because that would have been their October surprise in 2016 that Hillary could have used uh, on the campaign trail against Trump. So Durham, if he's I'm sorry, uh, Sussman, if he's working for Hillary, if that was the theory, he did the opposite of what was right for the campaign because he actually had the story killed. Hillary probably wanted to kill Sussman when she found Mm -hmm. out about that. I wanted that story to get out. That's exactly the thing that would have helped me. But instead, Sussman said, hey, listen, I'm going to give you a heads up so that the FBI doesn't get interfered with by the media. Go call this reporter and kill the story. That's not the actions, I, I assume the jury concluded, of a man or a person or a lawyer who's secretly working on behalf of an undisclosed client because it's not in their interest. And the jury, including the jury foreperson who was interviewed on the way out, you know, was uh, was very, un- let's just put it this way, was very unkind to Mr. Durham and his team in saying what a waste of time and money was this prosecution. I know there's all these people in the Twitter verse because I've seen it that have said, I'm reading the transcripts every day. I can't believe the jury didn't convict. They're usually on the Republican side. Of course, Fox News, the New York Post ran a editorial. I don't know who writes the editorials for the New York Post about how corrupt the um, jury was because the judge allowed one person from 10 years ago who donated to the Clinton campaign to serve on the jury. No, you're only supposed to have a jury of Republicans. I mean, I, this thought process and now the, the talking point at Fox, which is a a Democratic uh, Clinton leaning jury today, not surprisingly, found against John Durham's very strong case. I got bad news for them. Durham is notorious for having had poor prosecutorial discretion. I was involved with a case that will remain nameless in which John Durham in his office thought they would make new law in the area of um, inside, I'll say insider trading for now. Mm-hmm. And they went down in flames in front of the jury. So it does not surprise me that John Durham didn't know which battle to pick and decided to bring this case three days before the statute of limitations, the five year statute of limitations was about to run. It's like, Can you imagine the mad scramble in the prosecutor's office? I got to file some. What do we got? Anything? Sussman, go, go, indict Sussman. They go to a grand jury, no less, because as we've joked in the past, you could get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich, and they got an indictment. Great, and then you know, and now Michael Sussman, who's in his sixties, has to kind of resurrect his entire career because you know, for the last year, he's been pilloried in the press. It's unfair to him. It's unfair to the taxpayer. It's unfair to the court system, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer prosecutor for John
0: Durham. Yeah, you know, the the thing is, I, I read a quote that is similar to something we've said many, many times on the show, which was politics is no substitute for evidence and politics has no place in our system of justice. And I, I very much agree with that sentiment and that quote. And that's what's great about our jury system is no matter what the political motives are of, of people doing whatever they're doing. At least the jury system has to keep you honest, because at the end of the day, it's really evidence that that controls, and it's the jury of your peers that will decide your fate. I just hope this this type of prosecution or persecution—it's really a political persecution. Uh, I, I just hope this doesn't chill other people who want to come forward and give tips, you know, to the FBI, because our, our national security depends on that. It depends on people who come across and stumble upon, uh, you know, stumble across stuff that really could jeopardize national security and frankly if Donald Trump was having secret conversations with you know a, a Putin bank that clearly would have national security implications so you know he came forward i think as a well meaning concerned person who who may have come across it because of of who he represented but i don't think that was his motive and i hope this doesn't i hope this doesn't uh, chill future tipsters to come forward because i do think that that would be a shame
1: uh, that's why I love the midweek edition of Legal AF, because especially when I see a lineup filled with criminal cases, criminal political cases, mm-hmm. I know we're going to get that kind of nuanced analysis and observations. And it comes from 20 years of being a prosecutor
0: 30 in,
1: in the Manhattan DA's office. So thank you for bringing that forward. 30, We've reached 30 the years. Yes. Michael. How many years? 30. Did I? Listen, <laughs> I'm I'm your buddy and your anchor. 20 plus. Twenty plus years, the prosecutors <laughs> on. I'm not trying to undermine. I'm thir- I'm 30 plus in practice. No, prospects. I
0: think I pr- I appreciate that yeah. you don't want to out me in my age, but because it's everybody's really... like,
1: Popok looks like her father. How can <laughs> they be close in age? I don't know. I mean, I just you know, I grew the beard after the pandemic, and now everybody thinks I'm whatever. Oh, you know, I always wanted to have you know when I was younger, and I used to try cases. Um, I go against people with more gray hair than me and i'd be like god i wish i just had a little bit more gray hair because it'll give me that kind of gravitas in front of the jury or the judge now i got more than i need i'm, happy, me it, yeah. I'm happy to share but speak,
0: i do want to say speaking of my father he yeah. watches the show every week and he's a huge <laughs> fan of of this show so hi dad yeah and
1: just, happy father's day in early to all the yeah. fathers and people that are um, <laughs> you know close to their families and are and uh and and bring that kind of leadership and fatherhood to their families. That's really, really important at this time of the year. Uh, we've reached the end of uh, Legal AF. We'll, we'll uh, uh, come back next week. Shout out to the Midas Mighty and the Legal AFers. Signing off, Michael Popak and Karen Friedman. Agnifilo.